0: Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Today I'll be talking about a despotic ruler, enamoured of his own talents, certain in his brilliance, who emerged from a dynasty of of deeply dysfunctional people, and who was eventually ousted from office where he died, alone and friendless. I'm of course talking about the Emperor Nero. The Emperor Nero, ruled nearly 2,000 years ago, having taken over from his stepfather, but probably some very contorted cousin as well, the Emperor Claudius. His rules become a sort of totemic one, kind of synonymous with just crazy despotism. I was lucky enough to have Shushma Malik on my weekly YouTube uh, History Hit Live. It goes on Timeline, which is YouTube's biggest history channel. It's our partner YouTube channel. And she talked me through Nero and why he continues to matter uh, in the modern world. Um, Please go and check out our new... Uh, podcast we've launched. It's called The Ancients. It's with our in-house Tristorian, the legendary uh, classical historian, Tristan Hughes. Uh, he is doing this podcast, which is taking the world by storm. It's rampaging up the charts. So please go and check out The Ancients. He's got lots of uh, lots of material on there about the, the ancient the classical world, not just from the Mediterranean basin, but from all over the world. So please go and check that out. In the meantime, though, everyone, here's Shushma Malik. Enjoy. <music> Shushna Malik, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Well, we had to have you on. You appeared on the uh, one of the history hit podcasts called The Ancients, and you were like the star performer, so the team said you've got to get her on, and so here we are. We are talking near Centre us here. When are we talking about?
1: Okay, so we're in the first century AD. We're in Rome. And we are specifically in the years between 54 and 68 AD. So we are kind of mid first century. Uh, the emperors haven't have been the system of government since about 27 BC. So we're we're firmly into the system of government of the emperors by now, but Nero is still part of the first dynasty of Rome's emperors, the Julio Claudians. So um, he's still there are still sort of experiments being done with the nature of being an emperor in Rome um, after. After the, after the end of the republic.
0: Well, and definitely experiments being done around the succession, because what relationship, I mean, this might, your head might explode when you try and tell me this, but what, what relationship did he have with Claudius, the previous emperor?
1: So he was Claudius's adopted son, and that's because Claudius was married to his mother, Agrippina. It does get more complicated though, because Agrippina and Claudius were uncle and niece. So he also has um, a relationship with Claudius that's, that's uh, linked through his mother by blood as well. But uh, the more straightforward answer is that when Agrippina and Claudius got married, which was controversial, there was some changing of the, the laws that had to take place in order for that to happen. But when it did, Claudius um, eventually adopted Nero. So he became his adopted son and actually his heir as well
0: and then his mother may or may not have poisoned uh, Claudius to make to make way for him is where where do you come down on that one
1: Yes, so I, I'm quite a uh, sceptic of the uh, various crimes laid at the door of Agrippina, many crimes, which is his mother, Agrippina the Younger, many crimes are laid at her door. She is quite one of those women that gets tarred with quite a black brush um, when it comes to her relationship with both her son and Claudius, her husband. I, you know, I think probably uh, Claudius ate a bad mushroom <laughs> and things, things sort of went wrong from there. Our sources certainly, one well, a few sources in particular certainly suggest that she was involved. But even those sources don't necessarily implicate Nero in it, um, his own involvement. Agrippina may have committed murder, the murder of Claudius, but I'm, I'm sceptical.
0: Well, Claire Whitbread agrees <laughs> that you're such a classic trope. She says to blame powerful women for all kinds of wrongdoing. Very good point, Claire. But, yeah. but Nero's reputation is as one of these kind of almost caricature, like you know Caligula, Nero, Caracalla, there's these sort of lists of Roman emperors that we believe to be sort of you know uniquely depraved. Is that, tell us a little bit about their reputation and is it is it fair?
1: Yeah, so um, exactly those. So Caligula, um, he's emperor only for four years. Generally, the story goes that he's quite good for the first two years, then develops some sort of illness, perhaps he does get very ill. And that um, is sometimes said to contribute to his madness. But we've got to remember, we're dealing with sources here writing 150 years later. So trying to, you know, diagnose the psychology of, of someone based on those sorts of sources is, of course, you know, impossible, really virtually impossible. So Caligula is often seen as perhaps the maddest of the emperors. Um, If we want to give them, categorise them, Caligula is the mad one. Nero is the most cruel, according to tradition, I guess. Domitian is the most paranoid. He's the next sort of bad emperor who comes at the end of the Flavian dynasty, which is the dynasty after the Julio-Claudians. Commodus, uh, of course, of gladiator fame is mad and cruel and dangerous all all in one. And Caracalla as well. Um, Caracalla is not at the end of a dynasty like Nero, Commodus, and Domitian were, but rather he is involved in the murder. Well, I say involved is accused of murdering his brother in order to gain sole power. So he has a, a very bad reputation based on on that as well. So you do tend to get they do more or less come towards the end of a dynasty. Caracalla is perhaps an exception there, but it's it's quite striking that Nero and then Domitian and then Commodus, as a dynasty falls, the story told about them tends to be one of a decline, as we might expect. And certainly they become the mad, bad, dangerous to know emperors.
0: And do you think, how fair do you think that is with Nero? I mean, do we think he was, do we think he was pretty bad?
1: I personally think he was not, um, he does not do everything that he's accused of. Um, If you take the worst reading of Nero, if you think of him as a wife killer, uh, someone who set fire to Rome, as someone who needlessly destroyed the city in order to build his own golden palace, um, you know, with no regard for the people, no regard for anyone else. If you think of him as, you know, someone who does, kills his mother, does all of those things. Also, if you think of that in isolation, so not in the context of the Roman dynasties and the infighting that the families were going through um as well, then yes, he's he's certainly very bad. But I I don't see it personally like that. I think it's possible that he would have killed members of his family because that happens on occasion um, in in Roman politics. Um, it's not uh, unique to him necessarily. It doesn't make it okay, of course. But I think the idea that he set fire to Rome isn't true. Our sources, um, you know, say that that's a rumor. I also think things like the Golden Palace can be understood in in other ways. He probably opened a lot of it up to the public, for example, and he was trying to demonstrate, you know, the spectacle of of Rome. Perhaps he gets things a bit wrong, but I personally don't see him as an out and out tyrant that that maybe some some sometimes he's portrayed as.
0: We're going to watch a little bit more of of the Tony Robinson talk now Uh, in a second. I just want to ask you a quick question. First, you mentioned he killed his mum. You've got to at least tell everyone that story, whether it's true or not. But it's an extraordinary story.
1: It is, it is. Yes, I, I kind of, you know, throw away comment. Oh, and he killed his mother. This is 59 AD we're in. So his mother Agrippina um, has been sort of in and out of favour with him. She was very close, obviously, at the beginning of his reign, but then fell out of favour, perhaps. And, and um, Nero wanted to marry another woman he was he was at that point married to his stepsister um, Octavia who was the daughter of Claudia so giving him a stronger link to, to the previous emperor and he decided that she was getting in his way perhaps a little bit too much. He wants to make it though look like an accident so he invites her for dinner um, just off the Bay of Naples and um, in order to he arranges in order for her to get back to go back in a boat but he arranges for the boat to sink. He arranges for the ceiling to collapse and for the boat to sink. Unfortunately, he didn't quite reckon on uh, his mother being as, uh, you know, canny as she is and as, as, you know, clever and clearly intuitive as she was. So she, when the boat collapsed, she realised what was going on, she managed to s- uh, swim to safety. And instead of going, she's, she's a shrewd woman, instead of going and confronting Nero and saying, what on earth were you doing? Um, she goes and she says, I, I, the, the, the boat collapsed, um, you know, and, and thankfully, I'm okay. Praise <laughs> that I'm I'm okay and um, Nero has to keep up his pretense as well and um, is oh thank god you're 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 okay mother and then um, sends someone to to kill her and, uh, and and to stab her and that's how she meet, meets her end
0: right but that is a, obviously is that a story Suetonius tells us and you're not certain about that
1: it's, it's a story Tacitus tells us okay. um, as well. So so <laughs> maybe on slightly firmer ground. But, um, well, it's a, it's a story that was circulating in Rome, perhaps. It, it's um, certainly not what would have been known about him uh, more widely, necessarily. The official version of it was that she was, um, he thought she was involved in a conspiracy against him, and that's why he had to take that action. That's the official version, and that's what would have gone out. But, of course, Rome, like um, other big cities, has a rumor mill and that is perhaps a representation of, of the rumor mill as well as, as you know possibly a you know a true story
0: absolutely we can't be sure about what's happening at the moment in our world let alone 2000 years ago isn't it possible that Nero was just someone thrust into a family business when all he wanted to be was an artist and that drove him mad Shushma was he just a frustrated artist I have heard that argument used about other dictators uh perhaps in the 20th century it's a bit of a scary one do
1: you think? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, one thing to mention about Nero that I haven't yet is that he was he was a teenager when he became emperor, 16, um, about to turn 17, and he uh, is very, very young. And as Raven rightly says, part of his biography is that he wanted to act on stage. He was a performer. He was a singer. He was a chariot racer. He won awards for these. Our sources say he won awards because you know no one isn't going to give the top prize to the emperor. <laughs> you'd be pretty silly if you didn't, but it was his passion. And so certainly that idea of him having to go into a a political environment, you know, become emperor, is not necessarily what he would have thought would happen. When he was very young, before his mother married Claudius, it would have been fairly unlikely that he would have been become emperor. So, you know, Claudius had his own children, Octavia and and Britannicus, Uh, Britannicus being a a boy would have succeeded if Claudius had died later. If he had, if he had died when Britannicus was of the right age, he was only thirteen, I think, when um, Claudius died. So he was, he was younger than Nero, and so it, it, certainly there's a, a sense there that perhaps he has become, uh, you know, uh, put, put in a position that he w- didn't want to be in.
0: We don't want to talk about how Nero treated his little stepbrother, Britannicus because it's a family yeah. show. Um, what about but Nero's First of all, the fire, I mean, did he set fire to Rome for his own purposes?
1: Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's very unlikely you're going to burn down a city that, you know, that is the most important city um, in the empire. He uh, also, you know, was building a palace at the time. I know the Domus Aurea is is um, famous, but he was building um, the Domus Transitoria, um, a palace that he wanted to live in before that, and that was destroyed in the fire as well. And also, you know, uh, even even the hostile accounts, so Tacitus, you know, is, is, is measured here. He says, look, there are rumours that Nero started the fire, but in, you know, in reality, also those are, you know, it's it's not clear. He opened, as soon as he found out about it, he was in Antium at the time. He came back to Rome. He opened his palace gardens so that the people could come in and be safe. And he rebuilt Rome. The palace is famous, but he rebuilt the other parts of Rome, the rest of Rome, in a very sensible way. He made the streets wider. He made the building Materials, less flammable. Um, and so there's a lot to be said of how he handled that crisis, I think. But of course, you know, the domicile Rea then casts a, a shadow over the, all of that.
0: As one of our great listeners, it was a good idea at the time, points out, you know, he was alleged to have kicked his wife to death, there was violence. It, it, he was obviously wildly, it seems that he was, there, there, was, a, there was a mania to him. Do you think that the, the, just being given that amount of extraordinary power over that huge empire when he was that young sent him, sent him in some way crazy?
1: Yeah, so, so absolutely, you're, you're absolutely, that's absolutely right. One of the stories um, told about him is that in, in about AD 65, he murdered his wife. Uh, by kicking her in her stomach when she was pregnant. And it's a horrific story, a very, very you know difficult story to read about in the ancient sources. But certainly, you know, the power that he would have had, the control as a, an emperor, whether he, it sent him mad or not, I don't know. That sounds like the action of a madman. I, I, I can you that. There are other stories in literature of tyrants killing their wives with kicks. Periander, a tyrant of Athens, has a similar story said about him. I don't want to explain this away Is a literary idea of how you explain this type, you know, sudden deaths when of pregnant women. I'm not saying it's that, but there is, you know, elements of this that that have, you know, other other literary examples of these sorts of things that perhaps we can use to help. But I wouldn't like to diagnose him as mad. But I I mean, if if someone gave me the Roman Empire when I was seventeen, I'm not sure what I would have done.
0: (laughs) I think I would have gone. I think I'd have gone pretty wild. Uh, His death was a sad so sad and pathetic end wasn't it tell me about how how he was removed from sort of ejected from office and then murdered
1: yeah, so this, you're absolutely right. It's a very sad story. Um, we only have an account of this from Suetonius and one from a, a later historian named Cassius Dio. Um, we don't have Tacitus because we've unfortunately lost the last two years of Nero's reign in, in Tacitus. Uh, it's not extant. But what Suetonius tells us is that what he, he hears that um, the Senate have declared him a hostis, an enemy, a public enemy, and he tries to get some poison to commit suicide. No one will give him poison. He is running around his, ha- his palace trying to think of what to do. He thinks maybe he can convince people to send him, to give him a post in, in, in Alexandria, in Egypt. He can go there and, and you know, uh, be happy, happy somewhere in the east. Realises that's a no-go. Um, his freedmen then help him escape Rome. So this is sort of at night time, they have to, they have to escape Rome in a sort of stealthy way. He goes to the villa of his freedman named Phaeon on the outskirts of Rome. And, and, you know, the idea is that the Praetorian Guard are are coming, as he can hear sort of them approaching, he realises that either he has to commit suicide, or they're going to do terrible things to him. And so he decides, well, he decides to commit suicide. He utters the lines, not quite his death lines, but uh, not far off what an artist dies in me and then um, he could but he can't quite do the final act himself so one of his freedmen, um, Epaphroditus, helps him helps him do it um, and he, he uh, stabs himself and that's how Nero meets his end. He does get a good funeral though, they spend quite a lot of money on a, a nice funeral for him. So he gets buried uh, with his um, fa- the father's side of his family and uh, with a lavish funeral, so.
0: <laughs> I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I?, How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, you know, that makes up perhaps for some of the, some of the nasty way in which he met his end. What did the Roman people make of this death? And did it change given the kind of political instability that, that followed him, four emperors in the space of a year?
1: yeah so the civil war the period of the year of the four emperors as it's called AD 68 sort of mid uh, AD 68 to AD 69 certainly was a horrific time in Rome and um, Tacitus talks about this and says it was one of the worst um, you know things that he'd uh, he heard about seen encountered in terms of the way that Rome was uh, constantly in a state of fluctuation constantly with battles and on, on fire um, as it were so that was certainly a a very traumatic period, but it's interesting that actually two of those four emperors, so um, the four emperors are Galba, um, who is immediately after Nero, Otho, and then Vitellius, and then Vespasian, who eventually wins out and founds the new dynasty, the Flavians, Two of those four, Otho and Vitellius, both positioned themselves as successors of Nero. So the Golden Palace that I've been talking about, Nero never had a chance to finish. Otho was trying to finish the Golden Palace. um, And he, uh, and both of them sort of positioned themselves as as supporters of Nero. Otho in fact had been married to Nero's second wife, Poppeia, before Nero was. So there is quite a, a close connection there. The other sort of story about uh, his popular uh, reception after his death is we have a source from the second century, late first century, late first century, early second century, from uh, a Greek writer named Chrysostom who says there are many people in the East who who wished he was still alive because they quite liked him and he was quite popular. He spent time in Greece. So, yeah, it seems that he did have a semblance of, of popularity after his death. Enough, it seems, for two of those four emperors to um say well you know we are the successors of Nero
0: and and let's talk now about Christianity what what was the what was the state of of this new young religion creed movement when Nero was alive when he was killed
1: right so this is a a hotly debated topic in scholarship that what what uh how much Christianity had really made it to Rome by this period. So remember where AD 54 to 68, the critical years of AD 64 to 65, where Christianity enters Nero's story, is still, you know, as you, you can tell, just 60, 60 something years after, well, 60 something years after the birth of Christ, only 30 something years after the death of Christ. So we're in Christianity's extreme infancy here, and of course, Christianity began in the East. It began in 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 Judea it began in in where, where Christ was. So um there are Christians in Rome at this point it seems. St Paul writes to the Romans um, in in the New Testament, for example, the letter to the Romans. So there is you know there are there are Christians in Rome. But how many, what sort of take on the religion they had, um, what, how, you know, it certainly wasn't anything that we would recognise as an organised religion or or anything like that, where, you know, all of these are, 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 you know, fairly difficult questions to answer just through lack of evidence. But certainly when the story of Nero and the Christians is linked to the fire, so after the fire, those rumours that were spreading around that Nero started it needed, you know, an answer from the administration, as it were, from Nero, and decided that, or he and his advisors decided that in order to get rid of the rumours, they would blame a group of Christians. So a group that were unpopular in Rome, I should say, that um, the historian Tacitus tells us were Christians. That's how he um, how he describes them, the Christiani. So it's it, it sort of tied in with the story of the fire, But the real sort of crux of it is that uh, the one source who tells us about this from from the the Roman perspective, the pagan perspective, as it were, um, Tacitus, says, well, Nero um, killed them in such a horrific way that, you know, even people who, you know, citizens uh, sort of said, well, um, they're being sacrificed to the cruelty of the emperor. Um, It wasn't seen as a proportionate punishment. So, for example, again, this is a bit of a harrowing story, but the story goes that Nero put Christians up on crucifixes um, which again was a common punishment in Rome, but uh, for, for slaves, put Christians up on crucifixes and burned them alive at night to serve as torches, um, or had um, wild beasts come and uh, and and nor- eat, eat at them, basically bite at them, until the, until you know the inevitable happened uh, in terms of death, um, and that Nero revelled in it, so that he he rode um, on his his chariot in between, um, you know, these these crucifixes as as this was happening. So it's a horrific story, um, which we only have from one source. We only have it from Tacitus. Suetonius doesn't talk about it um, in those terms. He says Christians were punished under Nero, but doesn't link it to the fire or anything like that. I mean, it's just a couple of sentences. And Cassius Dio doesn't mention it at all. But uh, yeah, so that's the, the, the story that relates Nero to
0: the Christians. And, and is that where this idea that Christians started to believe that he was the Antichrist came from?
1: Yes, yeah, so this is the, um, this sort of started to become popular a bit later. So it wasn't immediate. It wasn't that we started to get literature of the first century talking about Nero as, as the Antichrist in in explicit in, in explicit terms. We start to see it really kind of take off in the third century and about the mid third century, where we start to see Nero named as um, the Antichrist in uh, the book of Revelation. So the first beast in Revelation, but also the man of lawlessness in Paul's two Thessalonians, or both of these are uh, Antichrist figures that will bring about an, an apocalypse of some some description and uh, so Nero starts to get associated with with those figures and that's how he he begins to be associated and talked about with the Antichrist and it becomes very popular in from the third century to about the early sixth
0: century AD. So it's not there's no evidence from the time that the Christians saw him as this sort of unique existential threat?
1: there's no evidence in terms of uh there's no um letters or imperial edicts and that sort of thing that would have gone out to the east to suggest that Nero was starting a persecution or anything like that no um this was they were punished for the fire you know or arrested for the fire of course they were they were singled out for being christian as part of his reason for scapegoating them but um there wouldn't have been an implication that uh, that Christians further east or or in other parts of 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 the empire would necessarily have felt like they were under threat from Nero. And certainly they weren't obviously for the rest of his reign, he had another three years after that. But the way that I guess um, he has been interpreted or the way that that Christian anxiety has been seen is by saying that when John and when Paul wrote Revelation, wrote to Thessalonians, they were thinking of Nero. That's who they had in mind when they described the first beast, when they described the man of lawlessness. I find, personally, I'm sceptical about that. I don't think um, that they would necessarily have had one figure in mind. Um, I think there's, especially because Nero wasn't seen as a hate figure in the East. He was quite popular in the East, and their their audience was primarily, if we remember, where the Christians were in the East. Revelation is is addressed to seven churches in Asia, in the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. So to paint, to kind of assume that Nero is, is, is an antichrist there, or would have been a ty- the tyrannical figure we think of him or understood that way in the first century in the east I think is, is difficult from a hi- historical point of view so I don't think that he was written into the bible I think some early Christians particularly in the west may well have associated Nero with those figures um, earlier than he's written in in the third century um, but um, in Christian literature but explicitly written anyway but yeah, I, I, I think that the idea that he was specifically written in is, um, is, is a bit difficult.
0: What about, we've got Anna Kaloris asking, who benefited from Nero getting this unbelievably evil reputation? Because it's one that has endured.
1: Yeah, so um, the immediate answer, I suppose, would be the a successive, a successive dynasty, so the Flavians. they Nero ended a dynasty, he was the last emperor in the Julio-Claudians. Um, when uh, Cassius Dio describes it, he says that Nero is the last in the line of Aeneas. Those of you who are familiar with the Trojan War will know that um, Aeneas was the person, the Trojan prince who escaped Troy and went to found Rome, um, you know, back in the myth times as it as it were and Nero is described as the last of that line because um Julius Caesar had associated himself with that line and then you know and, and then his successor was Augustus and Augustus um was Nero's great great grandfather great 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 grandfather so um you know we have that that line and then we have then we get a new dynasty and, and the Flavians on the one hand held up or Vespasian held up Augustus as being great because he's the founder, but in order to justify creating a new dynasty, breaking the line that started with Aeneas, as it were, um, you, you need to demonstrate severe trauma. So lots of these writers are writing under the Flavians or under the dynasty, even after that, the, um, under Trajan. Nerva and Trajan or Hadrian, so they are writing in a very difficult, polit- dif- different political scene, and an emperor who ends a dynasty is always going to be a problematic figure for the dynasty that succeeds um, succeeds it, and uh, yeah, so that that I think has has an, an impact, and that the way then that they characterise Nero and the immense cruelty with um, with the the murders of his wives and, and, and those kinds of things, cruelty against against the Christians, cruelty against nature, even um, in the way that he dug lakes and that sort of thing, translates quite nicely into an apocalyptic figure like the Antichrist. Lots of the traits used to describe an Antichrist, the antithesis of Christ, um, you know, come up with Nero because he is to some extent the antithesis of Augustus. We have, you know, lots of of similar ideas, lots of similar motifs that transfer nicely from the Antichrist um, to Nero. And when you have a, a very large selection of people who are converting, remember, Christians were converts uh, in, this, in this period. Some may have been born into Christian families, but many were converts from Judaism or from, from Greco-Roman religion. To have a, a, a way, a familiar way, we all know Nero is a tyrant. So to have him then um, as your analogy for the Antichrist in you know third, fourth and fifth centuries works worked very well, it seems, because it, it was very popular.
0: So how should we think, let's finish up by just saying, how should we think about Nero
1: now? Um, well, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about Nero now. So um, I think, think about him a lot. No, um, I, I think Nero now, he gets, he's very popular in the imagination that's one of the things I find fascinating about him um he comes up in in um in the media in political culture in popular culture quite a lot and he tends to be held up as a you know a paradigm of the tyrant which can be useful you know for understanding the way tyranny works the way that we deconstruct you know the the features that we apply to tyrants then and now, and, you know, have continued to do so. But I think with Nero, it's it's worth... If you, if you really are, you know, interested and in, in, in just going back to some of the sources, having a read of some of, of what's said, because often there's nuance in the sources that gets missed, like Tacitus talking about the fire just being a rumour that he started it. Um, Tacitus also talks about the laws that Nero put through or, or helped the Senate to put through that were very successful, that helped groups of people, that, that helped, you know, he made, before he even became emperor, he made speeches in the Senate in Greek To try and get a a, a release from taxation of parts of Greece that had come under uh, natural disasters. So there's more in him than perhaps the stories always always tell. And I think it's just, it's always, I think no matter what person we're looking at, no matter what historical period, to try and find out as as much as as you can and to try and and think about characters as grey rather than black and white. Uh, uh, useful for for historical criticism.
0: Wise words from one of our best historians thank you Shushma Malik thank you very much for joining us everyone Shushma that was great thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful.
0: (laughs) And you are also on uh, one of our History Hit podcasts The Ancients so please go and check that out if you want to go and subscribe to History Hit you can do just go to historyhit.tv and uh, use the code TIMELINE to get a special introductory offer and you get to join the best, uh, ne- the Netflix for history, it's the best history channel on earth. i feel we have the history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated.
1: One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He
0: tells us, is possible not just in the pages of history books but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.